I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. I want to welcome everybody to this episode of The American Idea. Today, we're going to be talking about one of the most significant figures in the history of the world in the 20th century, um, a person who has achieved great fame in his life and whose fame in many ways continues to live on uh, in our society today, and that is Winston Churchill. Uh, I'm joined to think about Winston Churchill today by one of the world's foremost experts on the man, his life, his legacy, Professor James Muller. Uh, Jim is Professor of Political Science at the University of Alaska in Anchorage. He is uh, a well-known scholar on Winston Churchill and has taught and thought about Churchill for many, many years. It's a real delight to have him with us to explore this fascinating historical character who I think can tell us a lot today, uh, lessons in statesmanship, in judgment, and what it means to be a great leader. Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today on The American Idea. Well, it's delightful to be here. Um, I should also note for our listeners that you have published now, it's been a few years, but a terrific, really the authoritative um, edition of Churchill's River War, which is an account of the conquest or reconquest of the Sudan by the British and Churchill joining that expedition, of course. Uh, I think the scholarly world and the Churchill world owes you an enormous debt of gratitude for that amazing labor, Jim. Well, it was a wonderful project. And uh, I'm, I'm glad after more than 30 years that it's actually been published. And pretty soon, I hope uh, the third printing will come out and people who've been having trouble getting hold of a copy will be able to do that again. And for our listeners, who will be publishing that new edition and how can they get it? Um, St. Augustine's Press in South Bend, Indiana, is the publisher. They've done a wonderful job. The book's in two volumes. And uh, you can either go to the St. Augustine's Press website and order the book, or um, there are some Churchill booksellers, either the Churchill Book Collector in San Diego or Chartwell Booksellers in New York may still have a few copies of the second printing. Well, let me like, let, let me recommend it really highly to our listeners. It's absolutely terrific. Um, all right, Jim, Churchill. I think probably all of our listeners have heard of him, but some of them may not know the broad sketches of his biography. Who was Winston Churchill? Winston Churchill was born in 1874, and he died in 1965. 
Sometimes one runs into people nowadays who have never heard of Winston Churchill. So uh, the situation may be even a little bit uh, less good than, than you suggested, Jeff. One time a reporter who was very wet behind the ears came over to our house to interview me a few years ago, and she saw all sorts of books on Churchill um, down on the lower level of our house where my books are. And she said, boy, you have a lot of books on Churchill. I always forget which president he was. <laughs> so wow. I, I think maybe um, reminding people a little bit is a good idea. Um, Churchill was born into an aristocratic family uh, in Britain in a palace, but his father was not the son, uh, the, the first son of the Duke, um, who was Churchill's grandfather, and as a result, didn't inherit um, much of the family estate or monies. And that allowed both Churchill's father and Churchill himself to be a member of the House of Commons. And it's his political career which made him most famous. It took Churchill a while to get to that political career. And in his earliest life, he had a lot of exciting adventures fighting in the British army in little wars way back in the days of Queen Victoria when he was still in his early 20s. And he wrote six books before he was elected to Parliament on his second try at the age of 26. He took his seat on Valentine's Day and, and gave a speech almost immediately because uh, Churchill was spirited and he didn't believe in uh, waiting or hanging back or hiding his light under a bushel. And from that point, having begun his literary career and his political career, both of which lasted almost his entire life, uh, he climbed the greasy pole, switching parties from the conservative party of his father to the liberal party, and uh, held a number of cabinet offices under the British government until at a very early age, just barely in his 40s, he became um, first Lord of the Admiralty. Uh, in fact, he, he got the job even before he was 40, but he was just about 40 when World War I broke out. And he had a big political disaster in his job as what is essentially the civilian head of the Navy in Britain at the Dardanelles, um, the entrance to the Sea of Marmara in Turkey, when there was an attempt to set up a second front, which he championed, and that attempt wasn't pushed through, and it ended in the disaster of a military campaign um, which Churchill didn't command himself at Gallipoli, um, from which the British and the French had to retire in defeat. And Churchill was blamed for that, and he lost his position. His wife um, told his biographer she thought he would die of grief. But eventually he recovered, uh, and recovered a political position as Minister of Munitions, and then went on to another series 
of high cabinet posts, culminating in the um, mid-20s when he was appointed Chancellor of the Exchequer, which effectively is the number two position in the British government, um, and switched back to the Conservative Party along the way. Um, and then, when his party was uh, not returned to office at the end of that decade, in the era of the Great Depression, Churchill um, lost his cabinet offices, along with others in the government, and even when the conservatives came back into power during the 30s, Churchill wasn't invited to rejoin uh, the, the government because of differences between him and others in the party. He was warning of danger from Nazi Germany. And uh, the party mostly didn't want to hear about how bad uh, the prospect of a stronger German government under Hitler might be for the near future. So he was kept out of office during that whole decade of the 30s, which is often called his wilderness years. The Second World War broke out, which Americans have to remember began earlier in Europe for Britain and France than it did for Americans. In fact, more than two years earlier, um, Germany and Russia ganged up together and, and invaded Poland from opposite directions in September 1939. And at that point, Churchill was invited back into the government as First Lord of the Admiralty again. And he held that position until Neville Chamberlain um, had lost the confidence of the House of Commons. And at that point, Churchill became prime minister on the 10th of May, 1940. And that's the most famous period in his political career, his wartime prime ministry, which lasted until the summer of 1945, a little over four years. And uh, at that point, what had been a national government, a non-party or all-party government under Churchill's uh, guidance and um, with Churchill, the inspiration through his speeches, especially during the war, uh, to his fellow parliamentarians and also everyone out of doors. And I say everyone, um, at least on our side, both in Britain and uh, in the United States, his speeches were became famous. Um, at that point, though, uh, there was an election. The other party, the Labour Party, won. Churchill, of, of course, himself wasn't defeated in his own constituency, which he won by a huge margin, but his party was defeated, and that meant that not he, but Clement Attlee, uh, who had been his deputy prime minister under the coalition government, became prime minister, and he was out of office. Another huge defeat and disappointment to Churchill. But several years later in the early 50s, uh, there was another election, Churchill won, and he served again as prime minister for roughly four years more before retiring, uh, not from his um, seat in parliament, but as prime minister in 1955. Then he lived, um, uh, almost another 10 years, during which he completed some of the writing projects 
that he still had outstanding, including um, his uh, history of the English-speaking peoples, and uh, died in 1965. And I guess the last big um, moment in his career uh, was when John F. Kennedy um, made him, by vote of Congress, an honorary citizen of the United States in 1963. But that honor was accepted by his son, Randolph, because Churchill was, at that point, too frail to travel across the Atlantic. That's an amazingly full life, incredible life, really, <laughs> to see to, to the end of the Victorian era all the way through the, the into the second half of the uh, 20th century and all those cataclysmic world events. Um, that's why he's so important historically. But what's remarkable to me is people are still fascinated by Churchill. There might be some people who don't know him, <laughs> as you say, the, your, your, your interviewer. But I'm thinking of movies like The King's Speech, um, the TV series The Crown, um, The Darkest Hour, of course, the, the movie. He's still a... It, powerful, important, interesting figure in popular culture. Why are people still fascinated by Winston Churchill? Yes, you know, if you'd asked me that question when I was a boy, um, there were then lots and lots of people, grown-ups, people of my parents' generation, who remembered Churchill's speeches during the war. And that would be the chief reason, plus the proliferation of Churchill's books, um, his, his writing uh, became a kind of literary factory as his life went on, and his books were sold literally by the millions by the Book of the Month Club, um, both in Britain and especially here in America. So, um, but, you know, it's interesting. Nowadays, I think it's chiefly... Um, People who have heard stories about Churchill, who have heard anecdotes about him, who have been exposed to him uh, on uh, on the internet or through these biopics and other kinds of uh, uh, programs that you were talking about, and uh, some young people have begun to get interested in Churchill and some older people, too, who maybe are out of college but still like to read books, uh, because they've happened on some of Churchill's books. He's an amazing writer, and it's particularly his writings that I've concentrated on trying to understand for, for the last 40 years or so. And uh, living with his writings and his speeches increases one's vocabulary tremendously. Um, I, I don't go anywhere without the shorter Oxford English Dictionary app on my phone, because if I'm reading Churchill, there are always words I have to look up. And that shorter Oxford English Dictionary, even though it's not the real OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, which is the best dictionary, the one I have on my computer, that one um, has most of the words Churchill uses, um, at least if they're in English. And it's a, that and, and the longer version are, are wonderful 
sources of historical information as well as being amazing dictionaries. If people know Churchill, then I think that seems right. And when you look at the movies that portray Churchill, um, they're about his speeches, as particularly those wartime speeches. Um, how did Churchill become such a great writer and such a great speaker? Part of the answer has to be his natural talents and abilities. His father famously thought Churchill wouldn't amount to much, or perhaps because he had such high expectations for his own uh, eldest son, uh, was always disappointed that Churchill was a bit intractable, um, a difficult boy growing up, uh, wasn't very eager to pay attention to anything that didn't interest him, and so forth. But he had very good natural talents. One of the things he, I think, inherited from his father was an amazing memory. Lord Randolph, his father, knew three books so well that if you took them off the shelf, opened them up, and began reading any passage, he could finish the paragraph from memory and would keep going until someone changed the subject. And those three books were wow, the King James Bible, which is not a very short book, Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, and a, a book on hunting, shooting, and fishing, which Lord Randolph liked to do. Um, Churchill didn't have probably quite that photographic memory, but his memory was amazingly good. And he read uh, all the time. And when he read things, he didn't ever forget them. And so it was a matter of some irritation to uh, famous actors later, like Laurence Olivier, when Churchill went to the theater, live theater, and heard Olivier in a famous one of Shakespeare's history plays. And there was Churchill sitting near the front row, saying the speeches out loud along with Olivier. Um, and uh, <laughs> Churchill used to do that sort of thing even when he was a boy. If one of his school teachers at Harrow School misquoted Shakespeare, Churchill would put up his hand and say, but sir, excuse me, isn't it rather? And he would quote it correctly. And the teachers didn't always appreciate that. But I, I think having an amazing memory, which is something that Churchill thinks is important for many, many reasons. Um, he, he mentions it especially in his essay on painting, uh, which became his um, hobby, his distraction, his consolation, uh, when he discovered oil painting about halfway through his life. And he painted over 600 canvases. We don't know the exact number because he was very private about it, but um, we've, we've dug into that, and, and there are at least 600 paintings that are authenticated paintings by Churchill. And Churchill thought that one of the things you needed to be a great painter was an amazing memory, because you had to hold 
retentively in your mind all the details of a picture you were trying to uh, transfer from your memory onto the canvas. And um, I think that memory and that voracious reading were really important to Churchill. This is a fellow who didn't get out of bed um, early in the morning, but instead uh, read nine newspapers every day um, from the uh, the wow. old gray lady, the London Times, uh, you know, which has all the stories of the royal family and so on, to the Daily Worker, the communist newspaper. And um, for Churchill, that exercise was partly by way of um, making sure that whatever official information he, he got from the administrators who worked under him was supplemented by uh, news stories which might tip him off to other things that he needed to follow up. You can be a voracious reader. You can have a great memory. Um, that makes you a really smart person. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a great speaker. And yet he became very famous for that. Yes. Churchill actually had to overcome um, a, a difficulty he had saying the letter S. He tended to pronounce it as uh, as S-H. And um, so he, he had to train himself um, to, to overcome that um, difficulty. But um, Churchill worked very hard on writing his speeches, and he wrote them in a very particular way. His earliest speeches, he probably wrote with a pen and paper, but when he was at work on a speech, it was, for all those around him, for his family, a bit like watching a hen lay an egg, only it took typically several days for an important <laughs> speech to happen. What do you mean by that? It was all engrossing. He was thinking about it, worked on it from the time he was in his 30s or so with the aid of secretaries who were at the ready um, later with special silent typewriters eager to take down his words as he expressed them and as he began to orate when he had his country house in Kent at Chartwell uh, in, a, in a long room, which was his study, he would walk back and forth trying out what would eventually be parts of these speeches, forming his sentences, sometimes uh, uncertainly at first, and then with growing confidence, and the words would come out in these wonderful phrases, which later became extremely memorable. Um, he had learned something about writing, he said, especially from reading uh, Macaulay and Gibbon, who, though they wrote in very different ways, um, were each masters of English, as Churchill became himself as well. And uh, the secretaries often had a little bit of trouble keeping up with him on their silent typewriters, 
because he he so often used words which they might be unfamiliar with. But he tended to hire extremely well-educated, capable, and intelligent people to work for him. And uh, they they quickly caught up with him as best they could. And uh, the speeches went through many drafts. Um, the secretaries prepared them not typed the way one would normally see prose, but what, in what was called in, in his house prayer style, um, with each phrase on a separate line, so that it was easy to see where the natural pauses or breaks were. And that was because the eventual version of the speech was the one um, Churchill had in his hand, um, to refer to if he needed as he went through. And he could, just by glancing down quickly on uh, something that's uh, smaller than a normal piece of paper, but uh, bigger than an index card and firmer uh, so that it doesn't fold in half when you're trying to look at the paper in your hand, um, he could look down uh, just now and then. But in fact, Churchill would um, practice these speeches um, to make sure that he really knew them almost by heart before he delivered them. And that was part of his success, too, because, of course, um, particularly yeah. in the House of Commons, the set speech um, is, is not really... Um, something that appeals to, to your fellow members. Uh, the, the, the way of speaking in the House of Commons is, is conversational. Um, and if someone delivers what is obviously a canned speech, um, members will start to uh, erupt in catcalls. And so it was necessary for Churchill to have planned the speech extremely carefully, and then to deliver it as if it were impromptu. And he, he became just terrific at doing that. And, um, uh -huh. and, and that transferred extremely well uh, later when radio became common to delivering these speeches uh, to a wider audience out of doors, as the British say, meaning not just in the House of Commons, um, because Churchill was able to combine a very conversational style with a kind of grand way of speaking in a way that was original to him and, and rather unusual. And it was very appealing to his listeners. And that's why we have the pictures from World War II of people gathering in their homes and in, in bars and pubs and so on uh, around a radio tuned in to listen to the prime minister's speech. Why did he know? I, this is fascinating to me because he spent so much, he had so much talent, as you say. But he also spent so much time crafting these speeches. He obviously believed that the spoken word really matters and it matters in really important moments of crisis. And he was just better at it 
than other British politicians of his time who themselves were pretty good at it. But why did Churchill think that speaking and speaking the way he did was so important? First of all, a discovery he had made quite early by thinking about his father's own career and reputation as an orator. His father was uh, uh, someone everyone liked to, to hear give speeches because he was so witty and his speeches were so sarcastic and had so many unexpected turns. And it might not have been particularly pleasant to hear his speech, uh, Lord Randolph's speech, if he were attacking you, but everyone else enjoyed those attacks and even read them in the newspapers where these speeches in that pre-radio, pre-TV, pre-internet, pre-social media era used to be published word for word if they were really important speeches. And people read them and even read them out loud to each other, um, chuckling and laughing and so on. And Churchill grew up memorizing his father's speeches and uh, savoring those uh, bits in them that were particularly witty and funny. And uh, I, I think that's Part of the reason he was able to to put in so many amusing twists and turns in his own speeches. But, you know, the speeches during the war were interesting because the parts we remember most are usually the perorations, the the descriptions toward the end of... uh, where we go from here and what kind of resolve we have to have in order to win and what our goals are and so forth. And and, um, Churchill was very good at at rousing his his countrymen to take heart and to um, uh, maintain their um, resolution during the war at a time when uh, things didn't look so promising. But um, a lot of those speeches earlier um, consist of very sober and informative paragraphs of description about what the wartime situation is, what the difficulties are, uh, how the government under Churchill proposes to address and surmount them, and so on. And so, And and Churchill had actually studied the construction of speeches when he was a young man to try to figure out what it was that made an effective orator. And what he did in those speeches was to try to put to work some of the lessons he had learned himself by thinking about speeches and studying other people's speeches uh, when he was younger. He also learned, yeah, he also learned from um, people who were good at it, including uh, the French, uh, the French Prime Minister uh, Clemenceau. Um, he was with Clemenceau a lot during World War One. Uh, in an era when Clemenceau was the prime minister of France. And he watched him um, 
rousing the the French Chamber of Deputies and um, really admired his oratorical abilities. Of course, he was a great speaker, as you say, and those, that's a fascinating discussion of how he came to be that way and why he thought it was so important. Um, but of course, he's also uh, a great statesman in the sense that he, you know, single-handedly saved Western civilization is too strong, but um, but certainly was one of the most important figures in that uh, against the Nazi onslaught. You've had a chance to study him as a writer, as a speaker, and as a statesman. What's Churchill's greatest strength? That's a good question. I, I would say his greatest strength was his ability to size up the whole situation that he faced at a given time, identify the most important elements in it, um, which might include things that other people hadn't noticed yet or hadn't paid enough attention to, and make a realistic choice about what the best alternative was for his country and, you know, in his own political career for himself. And I think that kind of ability is often slightly made more difficult by a kind of tendency to support a particular party line. Uh, Churchill was always relatively independent of his own party positions. Um, he understood the importance of um, conforming to the party line, but nonetheless, sometimes other things were even more important. And he realized that and had the courage to depart from the party line if the party line um, on due consideration was something he found uh, was going off in the wrong direction. Give us, can you give us one, one example of that, maybe from his leadership before or during World War II? The, 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 the first one that occurs to me is earlier, so let me start with that. And that is, um, Churchill was a free trader. And he believed in free trade. And the Conservative Party began around the turn of the 20th century to be more friendly to protectionism, to tariffs, tariff barriers. Churchill was against that, and that was one of the reasons he jumped to the Liberal Party. But I think the most crucial instance of it was in the other direction, and that was the strong propensity of the Tory Conservative Party, the party of his father, which he had returned to by the 30s, to uh, try to avoid anything that might increase the possibility of war with Germany. And that gradually developed, uh, as, as we know, into a kind of appeasement in the 1930s that went with uh, a kind of easygoing hope that there wouldn't be another war. And of course, the Great War, which is what World War I was called before there was a World War II, had been such a calamitous event for all of Europe and particularly for Britain, and in Britain, particularly for 
uh, the sons of leading families who had died in such high numbers in that war that there was a very general exhaustion and wish after World War I that there should never be another world war again. And the trouble with wishes like that is that they're sometimes unrealistic, and that one was, and it led people not to pay enough attention to what was going on in Germany. And Churchill had his ear to the ground and was carefully paying attention to that, traveling in Germany uh, as he did work on his uh, masterpiece, his great biography of his ancestor, the first Duke of Marlborough, in four volumes. He didn't actually meet Hitler, but he met a number of people who knew what was happening in Germany and talked to them. And he was extremely concerned about it. And when he was back in Britain, he found people less eager to do the things that would have helped to strengthen Britain's uh, military abilities, especially its air force, during the early and mid-1930s. Later, of course, everybody began to wake up to this danger. But by then, Britain, which always had a small army uh, in, in peacetime, was way behind. And, uh, you know, I think Churchill's ability to look at the geopolitical situation, to see dangers like that when they're no bigger than a man's hand way off on the horizon, just a little cloud in an otherwise sunny sky, and to keep your eye on that and see what it develops into, which of course it did quite rapidly during the 30s in Germany, is an example of what you're talking about. That's fascinating. Um, you've gotten to know him so well. Uh, there must have been moments in your encounter with Churchill, something surprised you about him. What's the most surprising thing to you about Winston Churchill? Well, I think lots of people are surprised that he made all those paintings. Yeah, I don't think of Churchill as a painter. <laughs> right, and lots of people are surprised too that he would have won a Nobel Prize in literature, uh, that he wrote more than 40 books and so on. Those are things, you know, I learned about him quite a long time ago, though I've learned more about them over the years. So when you ask me what the biggest surprise was, I guess for me, the the most sort of sustained and and careful work I've done in a scholarly way on Churchill was, as you said, preparing that that new two volume edition of a an early book by Churchill, The River War, um, which had been out of print in its full version after it was abridged for more than a hundred years, and the big discoveries that I made by doing that were especially about Churchill's reading. I knew, of course, that Churchill had read Gibbon and Macaulay, that he had read a whole bunch of books 
like Plato's Republic and Aristotle and Machiavelli and others, when he was um, doing his self-education, making himself his own university because he never went to college when he was a young officer. Because I knew those things because he tells them about, he tells us about them in his uh, autobiography, My Early Life, which, by the way, is always the first book I would recommend uh, if you want to learn more about Churchill. Read My Early Life. It's by him, and it's just an amazing book. Um, well, I have to say, I'm glad to hear that because we require all of our freshman Ashbrook scholars before they come into the program to read exactly that book. Well, and not only that, in my experience, and I've had a little bit of experience with your students, they remember that book extremely well, because several years later, when they're juniors and seniors, and they're about uh, thinking about what's next and getting ready to graduate, they still think of episodes and, and anecdotes and things that they learned from that book. So it's a good book. You were saying that, that his, but, the, what surprised you was his yeah. reading. Well, here's the thing. What I didn't really know until I began uh, editing Churchill's books, and I've edited a couple of other books by him too, is that um, I, I, I simply made a kind of scholarly rule for myself that whenever there were quotation marks in the book, indicating perhaps that he was quoting something, I would try to figure out what the source of the quotation was. And it was a real challenge because Churchill didn't have all that many um, formal footnotes, you know, giving credit to places where he had, uh, uh, from which he was quoting, although he has a number of those, but he also quotes lots of things uh, that just have quotation marks around them, and even sometimes without quotation marks. And um, the internet has been very helpful in tracking down some of those leads, although it's pretty unreliable and you have to double check it with real printed solid sources too. But what I found when I did that was Churchill had read all sorts of things. He had read novels, he had read plays, he had read books in foreign languages, especially French books. Um, that was really the only language he could he could read um, in, in for pleasure um, of, of uh, you know among foreign languages. He knew more Latin and even a little bit more Greek than he lets on in his autobiography. But he wasn't really up to reading Latin or Greek the way some of his um, school fellows could. But he was pretty good in French. His wife was even better. And um, it wasn't just books. There were sci-fi books that he read, especially the H.G. Uh, um, Wells books. Really? He read as soon as they came out. Um, plays by Shaw. So, you know, the current literature that was being published, uh, he was very well versed in but also journals, magazines of all kinds. And there was, there was a very flourishing market of magazines in those days. And even quotations come from recent American slang that he had heard on his trip 
his early trips to America on his way to Cuba, where he first got shot at um, when he was with the Spanish army there. Music hall songs, which he remembered from uh, shows he had been to in London. I mean, the quotations in, in that early book, which he wrote in his 20s, are just drawn from everywhere, and not to exclude great books either. Um, there are references to at least half a dozen different Shakespeare plays in the book, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, it's amazing. He, yeah. he sounds like he was an omnivore, <laughs> yes. taking in all kinds of writing and 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 plays and musicals and everything else, as you say. Right. <laughs> um, what would you recommend for our listeners? They want to get to know Churchill a little bit and something characteristic of him. What's your favorite book that he wrote that our listeners might want to take a look at? And what's your favorite movie or TV show about Churchill that our listeners could watch? Uh, I've mentioned my early life, and I think one should start with that. Um, the first book I read by Churchill was a different one, though. It was called Thoughts and Adventures, and it's a book of 23 essays Churchill wrote. The first one is about whether it would be fun to live your life over again. And um, well, that's really, an interesting question. It's really an interesting question. Churchill ends up concluding that it wouldn't. But his, um, I mean, he thinks life is wonderful and it's well worth, it's been well worth living once, but he thinks it would be kind of dull if he had to live it all over again, especially if he knew what was going to happen. So, um, but, but that book, which has essays on flying, you know, he was up in the air within 10 years of the invention of uh, the airplane and, and the first flight by the Wright brothers. He was learning how to fly, much to his wife's uh, horror. And um, it has essays on elections, what it's like to be a candidate in an election, either winning or losing. Churchill had plenty of experience with both. And um, also some essays on what was a very important subject to Churchill, which is the effects of the two great revolutions he had experienced within his own life, the democratic revolution, where um, society in Britain and other Western countries, which had been aristocratic, became much more democratic, and the scientific revolution, the revolution in, in modern science and technology, and the effects of that on the way we live and the dangers that statesmen have to face and surmount in order to maintain liberty for their citizens. And those were both uh, practical questions of real importance that Churchill takes up in some of those essays. So I recommend that book, Thoughts and Adventures. Um, of course, a lot of people will answer your question by remembering that they have some of Churchill's books in the in the shelf up in the living room, uh, maybe which they inherited from their parents. And um, you really won't go wrong taking down, say, the first volume of Churchill's World War II memoirs, uh, 
a big book called The Second World War in six volumes, the volume called The Gathering Storm, um, which is about how the war came, and reading that. That is an amazing story with plenty to teach about politics. And do you have a favorite TV show or movie about Churchill that you recommend? I liked that film, The Darkest Hour, when it came out. Um, it has a little bit of poetic license in it. Churchill didn't really hang out on the London um, underground, as the British call the, the subway, um, and, and talk to people down there and have that conversation that was in the movie. But I thought there were a number of very wonderful depictions of Churchill's speeches and also some of the personal qualities he had that made him such a maddening and such an appealing person to work for. Um, one of the characters in that movie who, who did a, a terrific acting job, along with, of course, the lead actor, Oldman, who played Churchill, was the one who represented Elizabeth Nell, who was a young, um, Western Canadian woman who was living in Britain and became one of Churchill's secretaries during the war. And um, I met Elizabeth Nell in South Africa. She married a South African officer and moved to South Africa after the war and lived there for most of the rest of her life. And she, she talked to me about working for Churchill. And, um, you know, Churchill had these labels made during the war. Um, soon after he became prime minister, they were red with black letters, and the label said, Action This Day. And Churchill used to put them with a pin on memos he sent when he wanted the person who read the memo, not just to read the memo, but to do something about it now right <laughs> and th that was an important thing because there's a big difference between thinking about a problem and the kind of speaking called deliberation which is supposed to end up in making a choice and following through on it and um churchill reasonably thought that that was one of the bigger challenges in um, being the number one person in an organization as big as a national government in, a, in, a, in wartime, was translating those decisions that were made urgently into successful action. And of course, it wasn't always successful, and sometimes People had to go back to the drawing board and try something else. But that, um, that little extra exhortation in that label, action this day, is an important thing. And I wish your listeners were able to um, see this the way we're conducting this today on Zoom, because I'll show you um, the... Action this day. Oh, there it is. Yes. That um, 
Elizabeth Nell gave me when I went to South Africa. Wow. She was the one who cleared out Churchill's desk when he was unexpectedly um, suddenly not prime minister anymore in 1945. And there were a few of those labels left, and she saved them. And I'm told she gave one label to Martin Gilbert, uh, the official biographer of Churchill, when he came to visit her. And I was the second one who had come to Port Elizabeth in South Africa to talk to her. So she gave me one, too. And I, I do treasure that. And I, I have it right in my office to remind me that I shouldn't let days go by without learning something more about Churchill. That's amazing. <laughs> and an amazing subject you could spend as you have an entire life studying this great, great man. Jim well, I wanna, Yeah, I want to put in one last plug, if oh, I please, may. Please. And that's, um, you asked me about um, books by Churchill that people should read. And you asked me about um, movies or things. But uh, often people say, which book about Churchill should I read? And I have a slightly different recommendation from some of the usual ones, although there are many, many good books on Churchill. And that is Martin Gilbert, the official biographer, who wrote the longest book ever written about anyone, which is the biography of Churchill in many, many volumes that Hillsdale College Press has re reissued. That book is amazing, but of course you'd have to kiss goodbye to at least six or eight months of your life to read the whole thing. <laughs> There's a shorter book by Martin Gilbert called In Search of Churchill, which talks about how Gilbert, as the official biographer, got to know his subject. And it's a wonderful book. So I, I recommend that one if people are looking for a book about Churchill to read. Fantastic. In Search of Churchill, books by Churchill, My Early Life, Thoughts and Adventures, and then Take a Look at, take a look at Darkest Hour. Those are great recommendations. Um, what an amazing man Churchill was. What a great leader, a great statesman, and obviously worth an entire life study as yours has been devoted to understanding that greatness. Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on this very special episode of The American Idea. It was great to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, Remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.